You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. England have ramped up their T20 World Cup preparation with a win over Australia in Perth, one with Ben Stokes back in the fold. How do Liam Livingston and Chris Jordan fit into the equation when they're fully fit? England have also released the next batch of central contracts with a few changes from last year. We've got a chat with Ollie Pope on the show that's included later on. We'll be doing a bit more T20 World Cup previewing and we'll also be going over Crickviz's list of the best 20 men's T20 players in the world that's featured in the latest issue of Wisden Cricket Monthly. And we've got to get through all of that before Ben Jones has to catch his flight to Australia later this evening. I'm Yaz Rana, and with me today is Crickviz analyst Ben Jones, the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, and Mark Butcher, who's with us in the studio for the first time in a while. Uh, welcome back, Butch. When you were rubbing shoulders with Wazim and Wakar in Pakistan, was there a part of you that thought, oh, I really wish I was back in the studio with Ben and Yaz hearing about how Ireland are doing in the World Cup Super League? Almost entirely, <laughs> yeah. Especially, uh, especially when I started to get abuse for completely off my own bat advertising toothpaste, um, <laughs> which was in no way... Uh, part of the uh, the broadcast. I have to say, I find the the advertising on the Pakistan broadcast really charming. It's really fun. <laughs> it, it is just the kind of like slight glance to the side. By the way, <laughs> are you interested in a cup of tea or some toothpaste? It is a lot of fun. It's it's even more fun when people take it completely seriously. And I, I mean, you know, if I was hawking the stuff off my own bat, then I'd be talking about I don't know Rolexes or Ferraris or something rather than. <laughs> Random toothpaste, but there you go. Anyway, central contracts. Um, <laughs> England handed out 30 contracts, 18 are full central contracts, six are incremental contracts, where players essentially get top-ups on their pre-existing county deals, and then there are six pace bowling development contracts. Quite a few talking points, players like Milan and Jordan, who are clearly in England's T20 plans, but not necessarily so in ODI cricket, have had their contracts downgraded. In Jordan's case, he's not got one at all. Jason Roy has had his downgraded. Ben Folks has his first full-time central contract, as has Liam Livingston. Zach Crawley, who averaged 23 this summer, has a full contract. Alex Lees, who averaged 25, but does not have one of any kind. Uh, Butch, lots in there. What stood out most for you? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, there's a couple of guys who, who might think to themselves that they, that they might have had a, a full contract, Harry Brook being one. Um, I think the... The Crawley Lees thing is, I mean, anybody who didn't see that coming is, is frankly a fool. Um, Alex Lees, his sort of struggles at the other end went under, went under the radar basically because Crawley was, was, um, was taking on all of the, uh, the vitriol and opprobrium. But, but Lees looked increasingly sort of out of his depth. Not, in fact, I hadn't thought he'd looked out of his depth until he started to try and play like, like he was David Warner. And then I just thought, well, sorry, mate, you can't do that. It's just, you're not, it's not part of your DNA. And, um, and therefore that probably became apparent to the, to the guys who were picking the team. And, and they, they thought, well, if we, if we want to continue to play in this fashion, then I'm afraid we might, 
there will be better people out there than Alex Lees at playing in that way. Um, which is a little, which is a little bit of a shame on Alex Lee. So I don't think he got a real chance to go out there and bat as himself, um, barring of course the, the West Indies trip where he looked terrified in the first first couple of innings that he played, but then actually started to look okay. But once it was um, foot to the floor, pedal to the metal, then I'm afraid he was the one that was going to go. Um, and you know, and Zach Crawley's sort of his <laughs> his his charmed life continues um that you know the final innings here at the oval showing what he could do um and, and everybody knows and everybody that's watched him can hear that sound of when he when he times something when he hits it at the middle of the bat and he hits it harder than anybody in that england team um and you know he's going to get another chance another opportunity down in pakistan on what should be very batter friendly surfaces um to to go out there and, and put some runs on the board um, it can't go on forever, but for now he's got the insulation of a, of a, of a, of a central contract. Um, other than that, I think it's pretty much as, as you would expect it with, I suppose, the only other one, the, the, the huge winner, the man who seems to win however much he loses, um, being Joffre Archer. Um, it just goes to show you that, um, that having the sort of ability that he has is, is utterly priceless because you don't even have to play, um, in order for people to realize how valuable you are. So, um, he'll be, uh, he'll be, uh, down at the, uh, the local Nat West cashing in another another check whilst his back heals. <laughs> At least there's optimism that he might be back fully fit sooner than we than he might have previously thought. I completely agree that it's not a surprise that they've kept Crawley and uh, and Dax Lees, but it is, it is worth just dwelling on just how fortunate Crawley is, I think, considering that 12 months ago, we were essentially in this exact same position where Crawley was kind of clinging on. Uh, there was actually, he wasn't even in the sign yet he was given the, the full deal over Hamid, who was just given an increment contract at the time. Uh, in some ways, that was vindicated because, you know, he made the 70-odd in the Ashes and then the century in West Indies. And equally, 12 months later, we are here in the same place again, where Crawley has sort of struggled through another summer where there's been sort of the odd spark here and there, but you can't really say he... You, can't, you couldn't say he had a good summer. Um, and those struggles continued into, into county cricket as well, where the other Kent openers all put up good numbers. Uh, and we're saying now, look, we're going into a tour where the flat pitches should suit him. And it kind of feels like make or break, but also it kind of feels like it's not like, you know, <laughs> like like whatever happens, England will, will back him and because that's just what they do. And there's not much he can do to, to you know, to, to not even get the, the best possible deal that there is in the country, if you know what I mean. It's like watching Doctor Who. It's like it can, it's, it can be as dangerous and terrifying and the characters are as close to death as, as anything, but you know they're going to survive. You know, they're going to come out the other side. I think, to be honest, like it doesn't really matter whether or not Lee's stayed. Or they clearly had made up their mind. You know, they wanted to move on. And I think most people felt that was reasonable. You know, It wasn't a vintage summer for any opener. And if you're going to, for all the reasons that they've picked Zach Crawley so far, i.e. that he's got huge potential and that he looks amazing when he gets going, that still remains the case. Whereas with Lee's, it was that his argument to be in the side was weight of runs and, and quality scorecard stuff. As soon as you lose that, you've not really got a lot to answer for. It's a bit like when like a Mourinho side starts losing. It's like, well, if it looks, if it's rubbish to watch and the results aren't good, why would I do it? Why would I uh, stick with this? Obviously, at times, Lee's looks class, but as Butch alluded to, it doesn't. It's not really his natural game. Mm. Uh, Butch, you got a question in from Sam Barnett, who asks, "What's now considered good for an England Test opener?" <laughs> I don't know. Being able to strap your pads on. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's harsh. Um, but funny. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't think that the bar has actually moved that that much. You know, what, what what would you? What would I be happy with if I was if I was opening the batting for England? I'd be I'd be happy with making over the course of seven Test matches in the summer. You'd want to you'd want to make at least one hundred, maybe three if you have an absolute belter. But two at the two would be your sort of like your benchmark for that many innings. Um. And you'd want to be averaging somewhere, somewhere, somewhere around forty. I mean, that, I don't think that has changed a great deal. I mean, there are, of course, there are extenuating circumstances. None of the openers that came over here made made any runs, whether they were from overseas or or the England ones. Although the argument would be that if you're at home, you're <laughs> that those are your conditions. You know, you're you're supposed to to prosper in them, whilst others are supposed to find them difficult. Um, I, I don't think that is. I don't think that that has changed particularly. I think if you're asking, see, there are two different ways of asking the question. One is from a team's point of view. The team might come at you with a, this is your role. This is what we need you to do. If you do this and then anything above that is, is a real bonus. Um, you know, and so you go and fulfill that and the team is happy with you for fulfilling that role. 
then you've got your own expectations of yourself and the sort of numbers that you would like to put on the board for your own personal pride and 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 in doing so that helps the team and those two things are often a little way apart i guess but, you could also read the question in that england have gone through so many openers you yeah. kind of think there isn't anyone out there who's going to average 40 so what no would you no accept? i don't think so but i think i think there are one or two who probably averaged mid 30s who um, well, a couple that kind of a couple that did it in, and were and were left out for doing so, and have been released off the contract list in Rory Burns. <laughs> I know it's more thirty than mid thirties, but I think it's been it's been proven that the 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 best in county cricket come into Test cricket, and for whatever reason, what all of the structural things that we've all spent years talking about, they come in and they can't turn a fifty-five champo average into a forty Test average or a thirty-five Test average. Um, and so to an extent, we're having the same conversations again. It's not really about selection. It's about structure. And that's why, you know, that's why we've been having the big conversations. It's no use sitting around being like, well, do you think Adam Lyde's going to do a better job than such and such? There might be a, a silver bullet. It might be an Ali Yor comes through and manages to kind of transcend the system. You know, and, and that's what you're always hoping for well, in any I, system. I, I don't but, know, but I don't know if I agree with that, though, because, because if, that was, if that was the case, then... You know, England wouldn't have won six out of seven test matches. They, they wouldn't have gone from being a hopeless test match side at home and away to winning six out of seven test matches. I still think that there are... But the guys you know, but the guys who won those test matches were guys that were produced 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago in terms of... The, right, and guys who, don't, who, who hardly play any, any county cricket at exactly. all anyhow. No, I know that. And that was, that was entirely the point of... of England's fortunes went a long way up as soon as players were removed from the system. However, all of the players that were that were playing were produced by that system. Now, at the moment, it's it's got its it's got its issues. Ollie Pope, I guess you could say he's an example that transcends the system, but he but he's a recent player that's come out of it. And Ben Folks as well is he is a very much just a product of county cricket. Recently, played a lot of it and done well. What one thing I feel about English openers and opening in this country is that because it is so hard. Even if you were to say from a team point of view and that sort of thing, that may be averaging actually, if you're facing a lot of balls, like high 20s, low 30s is a good thing. You can't do that for a same period of time and kind of not lose form because you would expect more of yourself. And if you are just getting out for a low score that's kind of out of your control, like once every two innings, basically, you can't, you won't be able to stop yourself asking questions of yourself and your technique and trying to find a solution to be more consistent. And that will then mean that you kind of have a shelf life just because the job is so tough it does it kind of breaks you no matter not 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 quite no matter how good you are but even if you are a player that in another era say might have averaged 38 and therefore been able to feel like you're doing okay because you don't feel like you're doing okay at some point you will actually not be doing okay because of how much you'll be struggling with that mentally if that makes mm. sense the, the burn Sibley thing i think it's quite interesting there was an interview with burns this week in the telegraph where he pointed out that 16 of his 32 test matches were played in bio bubbles uh, those are two guys who did the job very well for a year and it was a crazy final six months of their test careers as they, as it currently is, but they did do the job well. I think I think that has been forgotten a little bit. Anyway, moving on. England beat Australia in a very high-scoring series opener at Perth. Ben Stokes made his first T20I appearance in 18 months. His old mate, Alex Hales, hit 80-odd at the top of the order. Mark Wood bowled very well. He also bowled very quickly. Uh, he bowled several deliveries above 95 miles per hour. Sam Curran bowled well at the end there was one moment that caused a, a bit of controversy online I think it was one of the clearest examples of field obstruction I've ever seen Matthew Wade kind of blocking it was a handoff rugby handoff to Mark Wood as he tried to catch a ball uh, and Joss Butler then didn't appeal which was very polite of him Ben was Joss Butler uh, being too English not appealing against Matthew Wade asked Cam uh, well I guess in uh, in some way, you could say it's backfired because he sort of he wanted to, you know, avoid the headlines uh, and not and not, you know, ruffle any feathers. And now we have people uh, uh, comparing him to to match fixes and saying he should be thrown in jail. And I, I wish that was an exaggeration. So yeah, I mean, look, I I, I probably think I mean he, he should have appealed. I, the one defence I would have accepted is if he came out and said, look, this is a proper warm up, and we want to test ourselves against a really good finisher in a pressured situation and see if we could get him out, you know, without having to not to resort to that because would presumably would have caught that's the a, ball. That's a lot of clear thinking in a, in a very, very short space of time. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> uh, I would, I would have respected that defense a little bit more than just like, we're in Australia could, for a while. Could, couldn't quite stand the hassle. 
Uh, That's more of a Morgan response than a Butler response, isn't it? A kind of instantaneous politician. I mean, I, I guess the one thing that did strike me and it was that like, there's a lot going on in a very short amount of time. You could have just gone like, oh, I didn't see it. Just go full Wenger and just be like, ah, oh, you know, I was looking up for the ball and then all of a sudden, oh. And you can get out of it without having to make a statement about the fact that you're in Australia for a while. And it all felt a little bit like, <laughs> it felt a little bit like when you've been caught out by the teacher and you're like, you're trying to kind of quickly come up. Oh no, it was, um, there was a dog that ran in and uh, barged over Matt Wade. Like, <laughs> the big just, boys did it. The big yeah, boys yeah, yeah. from another school. Yeah, Mark I mean, my homework kind of like, just if, if, if there was a, yeah, the opportunity to kind of pause time, write a statement, probably wouldn't come up with the one that he ended up with but it's, it was all very silly like I think I, I think we need to maybe like write down all the rules that are involved in playing cricket and put them in some kind of book <laughs> and then uh, just play the game according to them <laughs> I, I, I think people forgot the, the the law that says you can only be given out if you actually appeal and the umpires can't well, give that, it out without the appeal I mean that's that's be all and end of it how many um, how many batters do you see fucking LBW when nobody appeals <laughs> none because you have to appeal yeah he didn't appeal the incident is that I mean, Mark Wood should have appealed, really. It was him that was being obstructed. All he had to do was turn around to the umpire and say, hang on, how's that? And the umpire would have given him out. And it would have been the least controversial um, obstructing the field decision ever given. Mm. Because there's not a single person who watched that thought, oh, that was okay. It was brilliant, though, wasn't it? It was a proper <laughs> I mean, look around. There yeah. he is. I mean, it's just, it, so, so that's really the end of it. It doesn't. It really does not matter anymore. It just, they didn't appeal, therefore the umpire couldn't give it out. Wade got away with one. England won the game. Move it was on. like a like a like a rugby player in a tackle, kind of like gesturing to the ref, like I'm trying to roll away. I'm trying to roll. <laughs> when you're like literally like digging your heels in, like refusing well, I, to go. I, I, I thought it was more like American football. He was literally trying. He was blocking for another runner. <laughs> it is a good point though that actually Mark Wood has you know escaped any sort of people questioning him, because but people like Butler being the target of this sort of. He's almost become the face of English spirit of cricket kind of discourse, uh, you know, with his interactions with Ashwin. But, and you know, do you actually think that there was anything to do? There was nothing to do with the spirit of cricket for why they didn't appeal there. Nothing. I, people are throwing this in there because people are doing that to try and justify some another action, you know, conning people into leaving their crease and then running them out. We're not talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> Please, so, no. So, so the reason that even so anybody mentioned the spirit of cricket has come up was because of that. This was nothing to do with the spirit of cricket. This was like, they, they just didn't appeal. It was like, a ball goes past the outside edge. You find out later by Snicko that somebody nicked it. Nobody appealed, not out. Po That's po it. Po possibly, but but if, if Butler's right in saying that he wants to avoid some sort of ruckus, the ruckus he wants to avoid is having any sort of, of that sort of accusation being pointed at him in England, right? But that's, but that's just... I, 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 I agree. There's, I there's no spirit of cricket. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all, simply because there's not a single person, no matter which country you come from, whether you're pink with purple spots on, would have looked at that and said, oh, that was a bit of a bit of a cheeky appeal by England. It was the most obvious case of obstructing the field that has ever occurred. That, that's true. But I, I guess, <laughs> I guess you, could, you could say that because Butler didn't see it, he didn't know how obvious it was. And if it was a slightly more marginal case, you have had cases in the past where there's been marginal obstruction the field cases and there have been spirit of uh, cricket questions asked. Like when Ben Stokes was out obstructing the field against Australia and there was sort of a bit of debate over was he trying to protect himself? That was, was, that, was to... the most, that, was a, that was the second most obvious case of obstructing yeah, but, the field but, I've ever seen. But, well. but <laughs> even then you had Atherton <laughs> suggesting that uh, Steve Smith could withdraw the appeal. You had... Um, uh, you had Ian Botham saying, "Should the captain be appealing this?" Oh, so, but they, well, they were wrong. Yeah, we sure. But but, yeah. but the point is, is that that that's. <laughs> I, I think I think that probably is why Butler has chosen mm. not to. And if he maybe if he thought about it, and people like, okay, that's fine. I can appeal that. Um, but I do think there is a there 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 is it's at least spirit of cricket adjacent to the reasons why he chose not to appear. Oh, I think I, every still... every time I come on this podcast, <laughs> every single time. <laughs> Yaz, it's like we're going to talk about T20 and then it normally means <laughs> we talk about the county championship for an hour and then I get five minutes on T20 at the end. This time, we're actually talking about a T20 game and we're still not talking about T20. It's an absolute belting game. Somebody asked Woody why he didn't just turn around and appeal. Because there it is in a nutshell. The bloke who was obstructed turns to the umpire and says, sorry, mate, how's that? And, mm. and this is done. Over. Uh, as, as is this conversation. Um, ben, <laughs> I'm going to ask you three questions in one. Uh, one from Rufus who asked, what is Stokes' best position slash role in the side is, is for the best place for him? But then also Liam Livingston and Chris Jordan, who are in the World Cup squad, haven't played recently. That 11 that played Australia have all done pretty well recently. How do you fit those two guys in if you do fit them at all? And where does, does Stokes stay at for? Um, I'll take the Stokes one first. Um, I think Stokes 
as a T20 player, it is curious because we never get to see him play T20 cricket. And when he does, it's at the absolute highest level, basically. You know, he rarely gets to just, you know, find his feet, uh, you know, in, a, in a, a quiet environment. It's normally in the IPL. But when he's had success in the IPL, it's been opening the batting. And I think that if Stokes is going to play T20 cricket and you want to get the best out of him, that's obviously where he plays. Now, that's true for a lot of players. Everyone wants to open the batting. All the fields are about a foot away. But, like, Stokes is conventional stroke play obviously we've seen him get a bit funky occasionally but basically he just plays proper cricket shots hard through the infield and he can when he gets set he can explode so yeah you want him opening the bat in the problem is is that because he's got that kind of i think england see him as that kind of selfless team man they can kind of mold him into whatever they want to be and also they back his just uh, kind of kind of abstract ability just the fact that he's a, a fantastic cricketer they're like well he'll make it work and the fact that there's no bear means that there's now a vacant spot at number four. Oh, well, give it to Stokesy. He'll make it work. Personally, I, I'm not convinced, but I also have enough kind of faith in Stokesy's kind of, you know, kind of superhuman efforts to try and at least make it work on a couple of occasions. I think in terms of getting everyone into the side, it's not too difficult. I mean, I've just kind of jotted down that top seven once everyone comes back. I think he's probably going to go Butler, Hales, Milan, Stokes, Brooke, Livingston, Moeen. And that's fine. Like, it's better than fine. It's fantastic. It's one of the best fighting lineups in the tournament. I think what's probably helped England in a way is without ha- by not having Jason Roy lose form a week before the tournament, but having him lose form six months before the tournament and having Bairstow get injured, not, never a good thing, but it does mean that really there's not actually a kind of logjam of places here. You're basically looking at Phil Salt coming in ahead of Alex Hales. That's basically the only real thing, which when you come into selection debates is like, it should James Ward-Prowse be in the 20 rather than the, the first team. It's not hyper important to how the overall team go that changes how sam curran's user he's currently at seven exactly and i think that sam curran's improvement with the ball or apparent improvement with the ball is is massive because it means that england have the option should they want to to have that kind of mega batting deep terrifying thing of having curran at eight and then potentially wokes or jordan at, at nine which is outrageous really um it, it, it opens up those opportunities of course i think what they'll actually go with is They'll probably pick Topley because they need that power play threat. And I think they see him as their key power play bowler, rightly, I think. And I think they'll go with um, with Chris Jordan because he's obviously played so much and they, they see him as such a valuable all-round player in terms of his fielding as well, alongside Wood and Rashid, obviously. Um, as much as they like Chris Wokes, I think if you think of how Wokes went last year in the UAE, what he was fantastic at was bowling good line and length on skiddy pitches where the ball just kicked on and hit the bottom half of the stumps. Now in Australia, it's going to sit up and he's a bit more vulnerable and he doesn't really move the white ball. Whereas Topley, I think he's almost the kind of similarly horses for courses pick off with his height and his bounce and he's quicker than you think. He's probably the guy to get you those, uh, get you those new ball wickets, which is why maybe you need to think a little bit more about where that tail's coming from. It's all, it's all a little bit fiddly, but I think the top seven itself with the exception of Moeen, and I know Butch has got thoughts well, on I, that, I, but I, I think basically I, it I don't, I don't think that you can pick all seven of the batters. I think one of them is going to have to miss out. I current? Think, yeah, I think current. I think current has to, current's going to be at seven, because otherwise it leaves you a bowler short. And Butler has been more inclined to play the bowler-heavy side. Than he has been, been after Rajasthan. Yeah. <laughs> after his experience of picking yeah. nine bowlers and one batter I, himself. I, I, think it, I think it leaves him a bowler short, because it, they're not, not entirely sure about what Stokes' role with the ball might be, and he's like a safety valve. Livingston's a safety valve. I think I think I think actually, but ironically, I think Stokes and Rowan are the two vulnerable guys there. If Livingston's fit and they're they're happy to put him back in the side because he's because he's absolutely three and one with off spin, leg spin, he kind of takes out the the whole um, you know left hand right hand thing for you. He just gives you it just gives you something utterly priceless. It's quite easy to get into the game. Yeah, absolutely, utterly priceless as opposed to, to to Mo, who sometimes you know depending on who the opposition is or the or the conditions might not bowl at all. Um, and could find himself coming in as low as as low as six or seven. Could I'm not saying will. So I think both Mo and Stokes are the two guys who who, who potentially might end up sitting out for one reason or another, and that seems unthinkable given how. But that's 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 the strength of England's batting at the moment. It's quite. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose the other guy is Milan, isn't it? You, you well, I was going to say about it, he's he's had a and you got more on this, but he's had a very quiet um, period of time. But then, but the, then I think him him coming in at first drop. At, in varying different circumstances, he's actually better at it because he's done it for longer than, than some of the others, than, than somebody like Ben Stokes might be. But that's, you know. Well, so I, I, I found it interesting that England did push Milan down the order in that first 20. I know that they'd done it before against, uh, was it Sri Lanka in the T20 World Cup and they were chasing a very small total. And it was also interesting they pushed them down the order in favour of pushing 
Stokes number three. And actually, in some ways, Stokes and Milan are quite similar profile players. And actually, Milan has gone some way to sort of shedding that reputation of being this slow starter that needs to kick on, whereas Stoke kind of is, or at least he hasn't proven that he's not that player. And they're, that quite, kind they're of, quite similar players. Yeah. And, and that kind of showed that he got that that nine off nine and that did stall England's momentum a little bit. Yeah. But, but it could almost, also have been, I mean, do, do, don't underestimate the fact that it all could also have been, he hasn't picked up a bat since here. And, and so that they saw an opportunity that wasn't going to hurt them too much given the start they'd had to kind of, to push him up there. And Milan's last knock was was a brilliant 80, wasn't it? In, in fact, so it could have been that. I, was, I, I, I hesitate to read too much into juggling batting orders at this, at this point in time, given that they're trying to reintegrate players back into the team. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I guess also the thing with Milan is there's almost like a an inversion almost of how you have to view him now compared to like, what, 24 months ago? Like at that point, he had these incredible uh, international numbers that weren't sort of reflecting his numbers domestically and he was kind of overperforming. Uh, he also had this thing going as sort of like a, a slow start which people felt could damage England, whereas now he actually is starting pretty quickly. He's up there. No, he's not like the very, very quick snob. Actually, he's a top three batter for this year. I think he's, he's up. He's, he's up there. Um, and he's got he's had a very good year domestically, you know, was a, a key in that in the Trent Rocket side that that won the hundred. Um, and yeah, he's had a really poor time for it, or well, not really poor, but he's he's had not he's not been the Milan that we've come to know for England in the past. What since the start of last year, he's averaging less than thirty, striking at under one hundred and thirty, and that comprises about two thirds of his overall career. And I guess we know that he's going to be suited to these conditions, and we do know what he can do if he does get a bit of form and a bit of momentum behind him. So I do think they will back him but it's just it's I think that there's questions to be asked again even though I I I would pick him in my team I he's also always feels like he's quite close to the door it wouldn't take that much for England to be like do we pick Curran or Milan Mm, let's go Curran kind of thing well I think I think there's an argument that if you're I I don't I don't think there is an argument I think it's pretty straightforward that if you're constructing a side from scratch you probably wouldn't have two players like Milan and Stokes at three and four because they're a little bit too similar in terms of their pacing obviously great quality but they're a little bit easy to plan for off spin through the middle and all this kind of stuff but the way that England have found themselves you know they're they're world cup winning opener has fallen off a cliff so they've had to adapt there by bringing in a player who they previously ostracized completely so they've made like a big a big change there they've brought in a guy harry brook who had barely played a game of international cricket or barely played a game of cricket in the last before 12 months ago and he's just shot to the top of everyone's you know next big thing lists so they are trying to be innovative and i think as a result you don't want to make too many big changes at the last minute and i think politically Dropping Mo or Stokes would be massive. Mo's just captained them for seven games. Yeah, to I know. One I of the get most that. politically important tours of the last twenty years. I'm, and I'm looking. I'm kind of looking at the at, at sort of an eleven, an eleven that, I, that I've just sketched out at the minute. And and I suppose and I, again, I'm looking at I'm looking at Mo. I'm looking at Ben, and I'm looking at Milan. There's three three left-handers, right? So one of those three left-handers is probably going to miss out in order in order that England then can cover themselves in enough areas to get the to get the right sort of bowling attack in. And that is with me picking Livingston and Brook at four and five or five and four, whichever way around you want to put them. Um, so it'd either be Mo, Mo or Stokes at, at six, Milan at three, or no Milan at three, and both Mo and, and, and Stokes you play. You know that's and, and that's how I'm looking at it. Otherwise, you end up lining up three left downers in a row in the middle as well, which is another thing you want to avoid, um, as I'm sure Mr. Yeah. Jones will tell us. You <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's kind of you know that there are three left-handed players in there. Moen is pro- Moen perhaps is the most compelling in terms of just his ball striking. He's just so sublime. Um, but I think both he and Ben right now for me are the ones that kind of are, are, are under some sort of threat of being of being switched out for one another. That's and that's how I see them right now. The one last point, which I think is it's a very it's very niche, I think, but it's important to think that we're not talking about planning an abstract side this is to play in a world cup in a few weeks time and we know who they're going to be playing by and large and actually if you look in england's group you've got new zealand australia and afghanistan now australia their left to right spinner getting my dyspraxia right is maxwell so are you back in milan stokes mowing to take down maxwell probably just about in australian conditions afghanistan you've got mujib and navi mujib's obviously excellent but not a big turner of the ball so it's not really about the left-handedness and navi you'd back yourself to take down in australia and then it comes to New Zealand, and then you're looking at guys like Glenn Phillips and Kane Williamson as your left to right spinners. So there's no gun off spinner that you're kind of terrified of. Now that could change because you could end up with um, with, with Sri Lanka, and then you've got Dikshana, or you could end up with uh, with with any of the kind of associate players who come through. So you've there are still concerns, but of the big threats in the spin department for the teams we know they're going to be playing, there's no offies. So you you kind of have to you know 
take that with take it all with a pinch of salt. The mm. whole right and left hand thing. <laughs> but is it possible that we'll know their first choice team for? six of the opposition's eyes of the World Cup, but just because of how they line up themselves and what their bowling tactics look like, and will vary that for others. Like, if there is a team that has a, a good left-to-right spinner, they'll be like, actually, no, we're going we're to separate the left-handers. Is that... Is I, that think, they- I, I think it's more separate the left-handers rather than necessarily pick anyone, because realistically, Phil Salt's a fantastic player, but he's a guy that needs to bat one or seven, really. Like, he's not a guy that you want to slot in at four to separate Milan and Stokes. Yeah. So really, you're basically saying what would happen is you might push Livingston up or push Brook up and it might look a bit funny and you might end up with some, you know, some snarky stories about the idea of, oh, why have England been, they've demoted Ben Stokes to number six? And it's actually because they're trying to manage the opposition. But you'd rather do that, I think, than get too funky with selection. The, the players that they've got are the players they want. It'll just be tweaking formations, I think. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There is a new Wisden Cricket Monthly magazine coming out this week. Uh, there's an interview with Ollie Pope that we'll play some of later in the show. There's a really interesting feature that hears from people who actually attended 100 games this season that we mentioned a couple of times on the pod already, and they kind of tell us how they viewed the experience of watching 100 games live. Um, and then there's a presentation of Crickvis's list of the best 20 T20 players in the world with a profile on each of them. Uh, the top five are Shaheen Afridi at five, Boomer of four, Narayan three, Butler two, Rashid Khan number one. There's no Virat Kohli, Baba Azam, Kale Rahul or Rohit Sharma in the top 20. So um, at Ben Jones Cricket uh, <laughs> to direct your fury. Um, ben, how was the list compiled? When was it compiled? Tell us how you did it. Um, so it was it was very, very scientific in some ways. And we used kind of Critvis models, uh, you know, match impact, which is our measure of basically white ball performance across the board. We used that to give us a bit of a guide um, and kind of weighted that accordingly. So, you know, if you've been good for three years, that was better than being good for one year, all that kind of stuff to get a bit of a short list. And then as the Critvis analyst team, you know, there's about, you know, seven or eight of us scattered across the world. Um, we all kind of took our own rankings to try and, again, get the shortlist in some kind of order. And then we kind of put the projection numbers back on top of it. And then at the last, wherever we thought it wasn't quite right, went in and had a bit of a fudge and tweaked it around. Because I think, as as we mentioned in the piece, we wanted the list to not just be an like an objective thing of these are the X number of players who've performed at this level. Da, da, da. We wanted it to, to an extent, ex- tell a little bit of the story of what's happened in T20 cricket. And so that's nudged. For, although Rashid Khan probably would have come top anyway. He probably was would have been challenged by, by Joss and Narine. But the story of Rashid this year, winning the PSL and winning the IPL as like a pivotal part of both sides in different ways. Um, we wanted to try and reflect that as and when we could, um, if it was ever a, a kind of dead heat. So yeah, a mixture of science and art as all mm. things should be. So I've got a couple of questions around the list. So Boomer is pretty much the only one on that list who is known particularly for their skill at the death. Obviously, it's a horrible job. But almost death bowl is a bit of a much of a muchness, and there's not actually that much difference between them. If if it is so difficult for pretty much everyone, other than a, a tiny elite group, does it almost matter that much who who bowls at death in T20 cricket if they're all just being clobbered? I think um, the notable thing is that Boomer is the is not just the the best death bowler; he's just the best seamer. Like full stop. He is, so it doesn't matter what phase it is, and that kind of accords with something we're kind of looking into at CreekViz and it kind of it plays into a preconception I've had for a while which is in, in short pithy Twitter ready form there are no good death bowlers you are if you are good at the death it's because you're good not because you're particularly good in that phase the skills are the same elsewhere and so Bumra being the guy there who stands out as a death bowler alongside Archer we should say because although though we can talk about his fitness etc he's still one of the best um, seamers in the world when he's around um, the skills needed are the skills to be a good T20 bowler, full stop. It's being able to be quick enough, being able to bump people, being able to execute Yorkers, being able to bowl to a field, bluff, bowl against the field, all those kind of things. And actually, there's not much evidence as far as we can find, and I'm sure people will find it annoying me saying it. Um, it's very geeky and nerdy, but actually there's not much evidence that there's a specific skill 
in being able to be an effective death bowler. And it all comes back to the old thing of nailing New Yorkers. We'd all love to nail your, be able to nail every Yorker, but Jasper Bumrah nails one in two, and he's essentially off the chart in terms of how, how good he is at executing those balls. Most people are one in three, one in four, and those balls that don't land are horrifyingly expensive, 12 runs per over, 13 runs per over. So actually, the most recognisable death skill in the world, the, York, the perfectly landed Yorker, is is kind of under question and I know that that's what people want me to say <laughs> the kind of slightly annoying numbers well, the, the, the and I'm happy to hear counters but I think that's probably why we haven't included many specific uh, kind of uh, role based death bowlers like the, specific the, guys who just do that role the bowlers will be very happy to hear you say that simply because they because it's something that they've always known is that the you get it right it's brilliant you get it wrong it's six you know and the, so your, your your margins for either good or bad bad Particularly um, with new bats, uh, lower uh, middles, all that. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, so it's it's understandable that they would try and they would shy away from that unless and unless perhaps they got the ball reversed in a little bit, which gives yeah, you that bit more margin, which we we very rarely see anymore. Um, and I'm guessing the other reason that because because death bowling is situational. You could have gone for 35, 40 in your previous three overs, but then you bowl the last over and you win the team the match. You win the team. You win the team. The match defending twenty. You go for nineteen. You've won the game, right? So yeah, statistically, it's really difficult to kind of to come up with it with a model that kind of shows. You know, so, so Chris Jordan, for example, I always, always think of him in this because people remember Chris Jordan's bad overs, and he has he has a lot of them because he bowls in a lot of situations whereby that's likely to happen. But maybe I'm not entirely sure what the percentage is, but I'm guessing that sort of two out of three times, given a situation where he's defending a game in the last over, no matter what he's bowled before, he wins it, right? <laughs> Which you, you, you'll be able to find out. It probably isn't. It probably isn't as high as that. It's probably one and a half times out of three or something, or one point two times out of three. But the thing with bowling at the end is you you are literally playing that tiny, tiny piece of the match, and the rest and anything else that's happened before makes no difference. You could bowl three of the worst balls in your in the final, the twentieth over of the game, or the nineteenth over of the game. But then the last three balls are an absolute, absolute genius, and you win them, and you win the game by virtue of bowling three balls, it's, or even two balls. You know, it's so interesting because like, I completely understand that, and that's definitely how people read the game, and I think it's how fans see the game because ultimately you're like you look at the score, you look at the over, you know, with ten, ten to to win off the last over. And suddenly you're like, right, everything else is relevant. What happens now is the game. And that's what you remember when it goes wrong. And it's what you remember when it goes bad. And that's why death bowling is so glamorous and why death batting is so glamorous. But I think the, the whole idea of you're playing a particular segment of the game and that alone is kind of how I see the game generally or how I see the format generally. In terms of numbers and kind of, uh, kind of the analysis side of things, a wicket in the first over is worth, I think, 10 runs in a T20 game. If so, if you take a if you take a wicket in the first over, you're 10 runs ahead. And so, whilst it may have happened four hours ago in an IPL game, and everyone's moved on, but actually, Josh Hazelwood, who's on the list as one of the best seamers in the world, him taking two for spit in the power play, and then even, even if he comes back and goes at 10s, 12s at the end, his good work has been done four hours ago. You forget about it. And also, just as a little counter, um, and it's, again, it's something we're looking into. I don't want to kind of nail my colours to the mass too strongly, but it our analysis does suggest that there is there are specific skills associated with being a power play bowler that transcend whether you're good or bad or not. And we all recognise this instinctively in terms of, oh, he can swing the white ball. You People say that even if, you know, you go at 10s all through the innings, you might instinctively go, oh, well, this guy does swing it. And so there's a tangible skill there. There isn't quite the same, according to our analysis at least, in the in the death department. And I think Jordan's an interesting example on, on that as well because he had that quite bad year where he bowled predominantly at the death for England. But actually, he had a good period of time where he, he bowled earlier on in the innings as well. And you're actually like, you know what? He is actually he's a good bowler in other phases of the innings that are not his speciality. And you almost feel like you're doing yourself a disservice by pigeonholing yourself as a, as a death bowler because it's going to go madly quite a lot of the time. And yeah, it's basically a gambler's mentality. <laughs> Hazelwood's kind of the opposite as well. Like you think of Hazelwood as like, you, you, if, if you could imagine someone in your head who would be a bad death bowler almost, even if they're good at other times, it would be him because it's so just like, you know, just short of a length hit the same spot again and again and that can be very good with the new ball where you can uh, break through and be good when people aren't trying to hit you because they'll just kind of knock it around and there's not the obvious bad balls and at the death we're trying to line you up uh, you'd think you'd go for plenty and he, he he doesn't he's pretty good there as well right so it's like he's he's an example of a guy who is just I mean he's, he's excellent in some phase and he's good at the death because he's a good bowler I mean Shaheen is, is, is the daddy isn't he he's kind of talking about somebody who, who's impactful at both ends of the game you know 
he, he he'll gain you twenty runs by by taking two wickets in his in his first spell, and he'll invariably pick you up two wickets at the end. I mean, he's just kind of he's he's the daddy, isn't? He? Well, I quite I quite I, I love the I love the contrast and the kind of inherent Paris, inherent well, rivalry. Geez. Well, I was going to say between Shaheen and, and Bumrah, and Shaheen is this consummate attacking bowler, as the guy who is just constantly looking for wickets at the top, and then will go defensive at the end because ultimately that's what your currency is. But he's still looking for wickets with Yorkers. Whereas with Bumrah, his strike rate in the power play is actually quite low. Partly that's, or partly, sorry, his strike rate in the power play is quite high, surprisingly high. His bowling average isn't great. And that's partly because people are trying to play him out because he's Jasper Bumrah, but also because he's not quite looking for wickets in the same way. He's bowling more of that kind of back of a length, you know, hit you in the chest kind of, kind of stuff. And it's, quite, it's just quite interesting that these guys have both basically, as far as I'm concerned, Archer's just a, just a drop below. Those are the two kind of Messi, Ronaldo, T20 seamers. And they both, performing quite different ways and it's quite nice that you still end up with this variety of roles even though the game sometimes gets accused of being a little bit simplistic and a bit one note you've got guys who are going about it very very differently and both having huge success Ben you had an observation of the about the spinners who, are, who made the list yeah it's not hugely revelatory but but all the spinners in the list all bat uh, and you also see this in the IPL as well in terms of spinners that get picked up someone like Adam Zampa for example was maybe should have been player at the tournament at the last T20 World Cup it's got brilliant recent numbers brilliant overall numbers especially I think someone's remarking that since his googly has sort of come on he's almost like a transformed bowler in terms of being able to contain and take wickets Uh, he doesn't find a place I don't know how close he was but I think that's sort of how how good can you be as a spinner almost without batting and because and how they all kind of is is, again is there that much for muchness and you need that extra string to your bow in a way yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's something I feel a little bit uncomfortable with because it's, a, it's, it's all a bit team construction, market dynamics kind of stuff. I mean, the old thing about why Zampa and Rashid, uh, Adil Rashid never got IPL gigs was because there were 10 gun IP, uh, Indian spinners. Why would you go overseas and get that when there weren't many good seamers who were domestic? So you'd spend your overseas slot there. Um, but I think what we're seeing now as well is that there was a period of time where pace, pace bowling all rounders, guys like Ben Cutting and that kind of thing were valued really highly. And those, those bowlers started to just get whacked. Part-time seam or kind of suboptimal seam, those kind of seven out of 10 bits and pieces players just started to get absolutely destroyed by batters. And so suddenly there was a move towards focusing recruitment on quality seamers, guys who didn't care whether they batted or not. Bumrah being kind of the perfect example in some respects. They just go in, bowl their overs. They don't worry about anything else. They might even be terrible fielders, whatever. You just get those guys in. As a result, you need to get your spin overs from someone who also offers you a bit with the bat. And so I think... Whilst Winindu Hasaranga might not be a much better bowler than Yuzvendra Chahal, I think they're probably about the same thing. I think Hasaranga's slightly better. Um, the overall value that you get from building a side around someone like Hasaranga, or Narine, or Rashid Khan. Or Shadab Khan as well. Or Shadab Khan, yeah, another great example. These guys allow you to pick genuine seamers. And we've seen basically the, the drop-off between first frontline spinners and part-time spinners is less than the drop-off between top-level seamers and part-time seamers. Part-time seam is bad. It's really bad. And so you need <laughs> you need your spinners to be able to offer you a little bit with the bat. And it's why someone like Yuzi Chahel gets a bit of a bad rap and probably doesn't get quite appreciated in the same way because he doesn't quite fit into a side in a way that's easy to balance and easy to construct around the world. Yeah, it, it's all, all, as with all of this stuff, it'll be cyclical and in four years' time it'll be different and people will just be going out getting the, the best uh, spinners and there'll be a glut of seam bowling all around us. Mm. Um, and one other observation from me, you said it earlier on the show that everyone wants to open the batting in T20 cricket. There are only three openers on the list, Butler at number two, Warner who's in the top 10 and Rizwan just about sneaks in. And me and Ben were talking about it yesterday. We were thinking of, oh, who, who are the other openers who are really good at T20 cricket? And we, we actually could think of a lot of guys who are very good. There was no one who I thought was unlucky to not make that list of openers. Yeah. What makes that job so difficult to be like, like what is it that Butler and Warner do? What, why, why, are the, why is that category so small when so many people want to do it, if that makes sense? The three that came closest for us were Kara Hall, who I guess th- that's probably partly a form. There would have been a time when Kara Hall had been right in this list, I yeah, guess. Yeah, no question. Uh, Rohit Sharma, I guess also with his new approach recently, if, th- if this kind of carries on, you might look at a guy who can go quickly and then go big as well. He possibly might at some point, I guess. Uh, but then I think there's kind of a big next bracket where Quinton de Kock is probably at the head. And I think he is that, that very, very good, but not quite. Great level, I guess. Or hails that kind of level. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think probably the the kind of slightly boring answer is that I think it's quite hard and you rarely see guys who are really poor at opening. <laughs> there is there is a lot of players on a similar level because ultimately 
you, statistically you're going to score runs because all the fielders are in the ring. And so it's quite hard to go through a really, really poor run as a T20 opener. I mean, Jason Roy managed it. Kane Williamson managed it early this year. But those are, it is quite rare. Generally, you might be a bit slow starting or you, you, know, you might get a couple of high scores and then fall away. But generally, people average out a bit more than middle overs players and lower order players. So guys like Tim David coming in at 4-5, arriving to the crease in the 14th over with the run rate at 10s they're probably going to need to go. So you're going to have that higher fluctuation. You're going to have games where you're, uh, you know, you're basically just going to go out and whack it up in the air first ball because that's what the situation deserves. A little bit like we were talking about with the death, with the death bowlers is that you're playing the situation far more as a lower order player than you are as a top order player. And so consistency for a lower order player like David or Surya Kumar Yadav, who for what it's worth, I'd have had as the best batter in the world if I'd have had my way, if I'd have pulled rank, but I didn't. Um, the thing that marks them apart is that they manage to play the situations, but they do it consistently. They, they're able to eradicate those games where they come in and whack it up in the air. And so the amount of times that Surya Kumar comes in, hits the first ball for four, gets 20 off 10, and that's basically as bad as his innings ever gets. Whereas, you know, a lower calibre of player in that role goes dot, dot, dot. 30 off 10, dot, dot. And you, you, you see that greater fluctuation. It's guys that can kind of override that. And I guess that's the same with Warner and Butler, is that what they do more than anyone is just consistently get those high scores that, without being slow and in a way that sometimes Babar and Rizwan are, are accused of, quite is, rightly, of being. Is there a, is there a question to, to be answered then around the relative strength of the rest of your batting lineup? Because everybody, does, everybody wants to open, right? And, every, uh, and, and so therefore you need to be scoring quite heavy heavily and keep in order to keep your place at the top of the order you know there's there's a lot of upward pressure from people who want your job but is there also a case that in lineups that don't go all the way up to up to 11 um as the uh, as the spinal tap boys might have called it um you know the, the the guys at the top then then without without being selfish but kind of protect themselves and their run scoring and their strike rates a little bit you know, as we've seen with, with Pakistan and the accusation levelled at Baba and Rizwan, I suppose, um, because they're a little bit worried that if they don't score the runs and nobody else is going to score them at a, at a better rate than, than they're able to. And so your your ability then to, to have a, a huge impact, a, a Butler-like impact um, on uh, over the course of the innings becomes diminished because you're you're slightly protective of what comes after you. I think it's there's a difference between saying that opening the batting is is easier and saying that it's not important. It's still probably the most important batting spot in the side because you're the guy who has the opportunity to face 70 balls and dictate yeah, the game. Yeah. So without it doesn't matter. It doesn't any matter. question. Yeah, exactly. So that, we never get away from that. And as much as you say there's only three on the list, it's three out of 20. That's actually a relatively decent number. And, you know, if you had more than that, it would be us just going, who averages 35 and scores at more than seven? So I, th I think you, ha you have to respect that with Butler, Warner and Rizwan, You've actually got kind of got three nice uh, demonstrations of the kinds of opener you have. You've got the anchor of Rizwan, who is one model of opener, who is genuinely just never going to come out and whack it from ball one. He's going to try and get 70 or 45, and that's perfect for the team that they need. Butler is a guy who can probably be a bit of, but who can go up and down and you know be ultra aggressive when he needs to be. But for Rajasthan, when they had no one batting below six, and even at six you had Rian Parag, you were talking about a guy who needed to make runs every game. And then Warner offering sort of a, a bit of a mixture between the two, consistency. Now, basically, I think uh, opening allows you influence, but it, it is just easier statistically. It's just obvious. I mean, anyone who's, who's got their head screwed on can notice that if you let someone open the bat in, suddenly their average goes up and the run rate goes up. I only have one major gripe with the list with one player I think is too high, but I'm not going to say who it is. You're going to have to buy the magazine to work <laughs> that out for yourself. Question for all you guys, really. If if Critviz were coming up with this list in, in 2027, we need to predict a couple of people who are not in that top 20 now who you think would definitely be there then. You can't say Rashid Khan because he's still <laughs> on the list, for uh, example. Well, one guy who I think should be, but and, and, he, and arguably he should have been given a chance to show he should be in it now, would be Prithvi Shaw, I guess, who is this brilliantly attacking IPL opener. He's played a little bit for India. Uh, he's, he's, I think, one of the scorers, power play scorers the IPL has had. And he's kind of like a new age player, but India, for some reason, just don't, really trust him and they've picked the second string side to play South African ODIs at the moment and his his record across all formats is brilliant and they just don't really seem to pick him I mean the same goes in tests he was what India's leading run scorer in the series against New Zealand that they lost 2-0 admittedly that's quite a low bar but then he has one test against Australia in which 
everyone fails at the bottom of 36 and he's dropped and he's kind of never been seen again. Uh, there's something weird going on there, but just in terms of what he's done in the IPL, he's been, if, if you were to just rank IPL openers, he would be right, right up there. And that suggests that if he were to get a go uh, across the world, he might be. And if he gets that chance, we'll see what happens, I guess. Mm. Mm. Anyone else? Harry Brook. Tristan <laughs> Stubbs. <laughs> Stubbs was Stubbs was going to be my one. Stubbs or Brevis? I guess the other one who you would say was not quite pushing statistically yet would be Nassim Shah um, as a guy I think in terms of raw materials to, to coin the phrase. You know he can be that Shaheen star bowler of going full at the start and then varying it, and he's got the got the pace to do it. And we know that if there's one thing Pakistan will definitely do is identify talent and give him the, the chance he deserves to uh, to play over the next few years. Um, also, one other name which is a slightly more boring one um, is Josh Philippi. Sounds like a very niche one, but I think he's a guy who's had like a weird couple of years, um, but who has been identified probably in this ver- version of this podcast three years ago as the next big thing. But I think a guy who is as consistent as he is in the BBL will eventually find a way to almost go to that next level, not quite Warner, but a guy who can churn out averaging 40, striking at 135 in other leagues around the world. And at that point, he becomes you know one of the most valuable. I'm picking Arshdeep Singh. I think he's going to have an amazing World Cup, especially with Bumanot there. Uh, next up, a chat with Ollie Pope. After a stellar summer, which featured a big promotion, a championship title and a starring role in England's Red Bull revolution, Ollie Pope sat down to have a chat with Joe. You can read the full interview in the latest Wisdom Cricket Monthly, but you can hear a sneak preview of that chat now. Yeah, going back to the start of this year when obviously things weren't going so well. I mean, that Ashes tour must have been draining for, for you personally and, and the team as a whole. What kind of mental state were you in by the end of it come kind of January, February when you were starting to think about the new season? Yeah, to be honest, I was pretty flat. Um, I think I, I left that trip and it wasn't at all, uh, oh, there's no coming back from this. That never really crossed my mind. But I thought I thought it might be a bit of a slower process, to be honest. Um, I remember I had a good, well, Ruti sort of put his arm over me. I, I remember in Tasmania, I was like, if you do one thing from this, Ash, this Ashes trip is make sure you use this as the biggest learning curve in there and do what you need to do with it rather than sort of hide away. So you, we know what an amazing player you are. It's not, it's not the end of the road at all. It's use that in the right way rather than go and sort of sulk about it in a way. And I, I tried to just get back to life as normal pretty quickly after. Um, but yeah, the end of it, it was a brutal trip to be honest. It felt like everywhere you go, you sort of just got, just got stick from, from every Aussie out there. And, um, but I've taken some massive learnings from it and I've learned what works well for me as a, as a player and as a person as well to help me perform well. And that, that advice coming from Joe, who you know had his own difficult Ashes trip, ended up getting dropped on a tour you know, to see him come back and, and be as fantastic as he's been. Does that give you an extra bit of confidence as well that you can see that he's been through a similar career trajectory and, and come out the other side of it so brilliantly? Yeah, definitely. He's always someone I, I talk to a lot about um, about batting, but also about the career path. And, and I'm not saying I'm not comparing us at all in any ways. He's probably the best best England has ever had, in my opinion. Anyway, so I'm not I'm not trying to uh, draw too many comparisons to that. Um, but I, I he got into the team early. He had some good success early. He got dropped uh, fairly early as well. So I, I use that and that from a mindset point of view and how he dealt with that is, and I try and sort of learn, learn off that as a, uh, learn what I can off that. Um, so yeah, and he, he's great for me to, he sort of takes me under the wing a little bit, it feels like, and, and we talk a lot about those things. So yeah, he's been, he's been great for me to have. You said you didn't by any means think it was the end of the road, but had doubts started to creep in that, that test cricket might be something that was going to be tougher to crack than you had initially anticipated. Obviously it, it started off pretty well for you. Yeah, um, I think I, I was. I found it so frustrating for a while. I'm not saying I've cracked it at all, but I've, I'm get, I've become more consistent this summer, and I've got some big aspirations for going forward as well. And I want to become be becoming more more and more consistent at that format. And it was just something I found for a while quite frustrating, and I almost realised that I've, I think I was almost putting myself under too much pressure in a way. Um, I, I, I do anything to succeed and to, and to have a career like these legends have had and look back at the end of it and go and you want to be someone that's got every every bit of success that is in there out of yourself and I, I couldn't work out why I wasn't sort of taking my my performances for Surrey into that arena and so I think I tried to almost become a little bit more relaxed around the test match week and put a lot more hard work in prior to it right not just the two days before but so for example 
before the West Indies trip, I I'd hit more more than I ever had, and I needed to, to be honest, because my game wasn't where it needed to be. And even now, I'm I'm doing a lot more work outside of the actual training days rather than just cramming it in the day before and thinking that's going to that's going to serve me well. So, so yeah. It, and then once I go into a Test match week this summer, I've just enjoyed it more than ever, and I think Baz has probably been a big factor in that, and just. And Stokesy as well, and just putting the the enjoyment back into it, rather than thinking that if I miss out this week, then it'll be my last one for a while. So, yeah, it's it's been the last sort of twelve months have been a really good learning curve for me as as a whole. And I think you you need to have those low moments and those those dark days in a way um, to to work to work out what does work well for you and what doesn't work for you. A few people picked up on the fact that um, you maybe looked a little bit frenetic at the crease and the ashes, maybe a bit like you're saying, trying maybe a bit too hard even. Um, I wonder, do you think that was a fair comment and, and, and how have you been able to address that, if so? Um, I think the frenetic one I've never really got um, because when I score quick hundreds, then apparently that's my that's my... That's my positive in a way. So it's not necessarily being frenetic. I think it's actually probably looks that way because I'm always looking to score. I'm always looking to get down the other end early in the innings because that's what works well for me. Um, it's almost more just staying on my shot a bit longer. I think it's as simple as that. And I think the way I played Lyon, for example, was uh, a probably a, more of a lack of a game plan, putting too much time into the, the seamers. And, and then he got me out twice early and... I wasn't clear enough on how exactly I wanted to play him, I think. So it's it's not necessarily being frenetic and, and and that kind of thing. It's more just having a lack of clarity about how I wanted to to go about an innings and how I wanted to play a bowler like him. Um so and and then staying in my shot that little bit longer. Um so and that and that comes from um as you get into an innings that frenetic side sort of gradually disappears because you pick up the ball that little bit quicker and you're mm. seeing a little bit better and you've got the feel for the game so I always find that one an interesting one when people have said the, the frenetic thing because that that I'm frenetic when I score hundreds as well so yeah it's a it's a positive but I guess it can look at like a negative on on the bad days Elsewhere in the international game Australia beat West Indies 2-0 in Australia a second string India beat South Africa 2-1 in some ODIs, which leaves South Africa in even more trouble with regards to 2023 World Cup qualification than they were before. Ben, that leaves the door open for Ireland. This is the bit that Butch has been waiting for. Um, but also your moment of the week is from that series. Uh, yes, yeah, should we cover the, the Super League stuff first? So I actually think there's been a bit too much doom and gloom in a way around South Africa's chances. Like people have basically said when that Australia was cancelled, like they just don't have a hope to, to qualify. And actually they still have a hope even now. I mean, they'll play England at home. They'll have a chance in that series. They'll go into its favourites. But even if they get a win in that and then win their two games against the Netherlands, then they'll have a chance. And that would almost knock out Ireland. Uh, Schlanke, you'd probably say, just about favourites at the moment. They've got two series left against New Zealand away Afghanistan at home. But equally, they could lose both of those and they could lose the New Zealand 1-3-0. And then Ireland have one series left against Bangladesh at home. They will have a chance of winning that. So it's kind of... It's all to play for. I won't go through the exact who needs how many wins to overtake who because that could get quite long and boring. Uh, but my my, my favourite, my moment from this series... Uh, Sorry, just on the Ireland thing, if Ireland qualify, that means that one of Sri Lanka, West Indies, South Africa will not go to the World Cup at all. Yes, yes. Because three of them will be the qualification tournament. Worth pointing out, yeah. My moment of the week from that South Africa-India series was uh, a ball that Kuldeep Yadav bowled to uh, Aidan Markram in the first ODI. Um, which there's a few things I like about it. First, it spun miles. You saw that straight away. And then you watch the replay and realise that it spun even more than you thought. Like you kind of thought that maybe it had spun and gone right through the, uh, the the gate and taken out sort of middle and off, or maybe that it had taken a bit of inside edge, actually hadn't, hadn't turned that much. And then you saw it actually it flicked off his pad and so turned actually a little bit sort of like the, the other way. So it, it turned so much. And then people were also talking about the amazing setup beforehand, which I... I sort of buy to an extent, but I also think he just bowled five balls, none of which Aiden Markram could pick. And eventually one of them kind of got him out. Um, and he just looked like he didn't have a clue. Got it, Biadav's had a, a, a toughish time of it since being sort of one of the most highly rated uh, wrist spinners in the world. This was in the third ODI, which India cleaned up South Africa for uh, 99 to win the series. He took his first four for international cricket since early 2019. So it's been a little while out and he's obviously not in that World Cup squad. This is a second string squad that's playing, but he looks like he's on his 
on his way back now. Elsewhere, other T20 World Cup preparation. New Zealand are hosting a tri-series with Bangladesh and Pakistan. New Zealand and Pakistan have exchanged wins while Bangladesh have lost both games they've played so far. Uh, and Ben, the Women's Asia Cup has had a few newsworthy moments. Do you want to talk us through what's happened? The, the main event was Thailand beating Pakistan. Yes. Well, I think we need just a little snippet of Asia Cup history just because it builds up uh, how big the tournament has been. So up until 2018... India hadn't just won every edition of the Women's Asia Cup. They had won every game they had played in the Women's Asia Cup. Uh, and then in the 2018 tournament, Bangladesh, and not Pakistan or Sri Lanka, who you traditionally think is the next rank, but Bangladesh beat India twice. So you think, okay, there's something going on here. Bangladesh won that tournament. And now you have a tournament where it feels like anyone can beat anyone. So Thailand beat Pakistan. Pakistan beat India. Bangladesh, with the defending champions, haven't even made the semis. They had a, a washed out game, which kind of ended their chances. Um, so you have India v Thailand, which will be, you know... A, presumably India win that game but a great opportunity for Thailand and this is also following on from uh, the Women's T20 World Cup qualifiers which was similar really in terms of everyone being able to beat everyone I think UAE shocks Zimbabwe in that uh, Bangladesh Ireland Zimbabwe Thailand Scotland all could have gone through they pushed each other close or took wins off each other I think USA were the only team to come out of that without a win um, and then you had the Women's World Cup qualifier last year which was uh, cancelled very quickly as soon as it became a slight logistical challenge for the IC to rearrange or postpone or anything and in that also kind of looked like everyone was taking wins off each other uh, and yet you have a situation where the 2025 uh, ODI World Cup will only have eight teams uh, the next T20 World Cup will only have 10 teams and even the 2026 World Cup will only increase to 12 really which is minuscule when these results show that you know down to the the, the Thailand with 13th exactly. ranked in the world and that, yeah that they can beat one of the best teams or something the best teams in the world you can beat another of the best teams in the world uh, a 14 or even a 16 team world cup could be possible and supported and the ICs don't really have the ambition to do that I think mm. this is very much the, the Ben bit of the show we've got one other question that Ben's going to answer for us Johnny asks I'm a bit confused why Pakistan and India are launching women's T20 tournaments which aren't connected to the PSL or the IPL surely it would be simpler and more successful and probably cheaper to create women's teams for each franchise. What am I missing? So I'm not absolutely certain on this, but my instinct is that it's because these franchises are privately owned, basically. You can't just say to Mumbai Indians or Peshwa's Almi, you just you have to make a women's team now. And and then if you have if you do a women call it a women's IPL that's actually not really an IPL because it's not the same team, you're kind of looking like, why are we not just doing something that is standalone? With the IPL, well, with you know the women's t20 challenge which isn't really been a women's ipl that's also had fewer teams than an ipl as well so i think i think that's the issue is that if you'd started it from the beginning or as you've seen in with the big bash league where the women's big bbl was started a bit after the bbl but the teams were centrally owned and run then you can just say okay we're running these as sort of joint entities but you, it's much more difficult to do that with a, a privately owned venture i guess i think i'd imagine that'd be the situation one thing by the way we haven't mentioned and i imagine it's butcher's moment of the week uh is from the uh the west indies australia series did you, the, did you see the kyle mayers shot the shot that went around the world no i didn't you don't see this? Oh, you are the only person who didn't see it <laughs> how, how did I miss you, you, you must have been flying at this point <laughs> everyone in the world hey, listen a... leave my private life out of it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, it just it just it just it just instantly people saying this this must be the greatest cricket shot ever played basically I don't know how how you describe it it's, sort I mean, of it's, a, it's kind of a back it's a back foot cover drive to a ball which is is sent almost a bouncer goes one hundred and five meters goes one hundred and five meters tier. over extra and it, his, his elbow is impossibly high as is the bat uh, we'll, we'll watch it after but you'll, and, you'll really and, enjoy and it he, and he holds the shot in a way that's befitting of the shot that he's playing yeah. that makes sense he knows how good it is if it was and proportional it if it was proportional but you know. <laughs> Quality of shot to length of hold the pose. He'd still be holding it. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, and, oh, man. and finally, the, the photographer David Griffin shared the minutes of a Derbyshire County Cricket Club committee meeting from 1973 the other day. It includes a paragraph that says, the club have been offered the services of a Mr. A. Roberts, brackets fast bowler, and a Mr. V. Richards, brackets batsman from the West Indies. These two young players have been training at the Govers School in London, but have decided that if any overseas player was to be engaged, he must be of the highest class, and these two could not be considered. Um, Lawrence Rowe was signed up as the overseas for Derbyshire in 1974 and didn't reach three figures in any of his 17 county championship appearances. That kind of links to a question we got recently from Will Griffin, who referencing Luke Wells's release from Sussex and subsequent success at Lancashire asked, can the pod think of any poorer decisions by 
a county to release a player who has subsequently gone on to prove them wrong and have a successful career. <laughs> so I was thinking about Dick Rowe of Decca Records turning down the Beatles. Was it, who's he let go by? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Joe's messaging from Holiday to help us out on this one. So he said, Darren Stevens wasn't offered a new contract by Leicestershire before he went to Kent. Uh, Tim Murta was released by Surrey when he had a year left in his contract, although it was Alan Butcher who was being nice because he thought he needed more opportunities. Um, and then Ben Compton... I, I tried to persuade him to stay. Well, there we go. And then, uh, obviously, Ben Compton had a very good summer. He was he was let go by by Knotts. Um, ben, you don't have a county championship example, but you've got an IPL one. <laughs> Quite, quite appropriately. Um, well, no, it was just with, before the last mega auction, politically, it was it was a bit of a mess, seemingly, at Sunrise's Hyderabad. But they did, at the time, have Rashid Khan, obviously, officially the best T20 player in the world, <laughs> for his career, and David Warner, officially the, well, the second best opener. Um, and Warner is obviously historically been very associated with Sunrisers and has captained them and has been, you know, one of them, probably the most famous player. Um, but had a falling out with the hierarchy, with the powers that be. Rashid Khan seemingly wanted to stay, but maybe wanted to get the captaincy, all those kind of wranglings behind the scenes. Um, and he wasn't uh, he wasn't convinced to stay. And uh, as a result, they both left at the end of the uh, of that cycle. And then as a result, they kept Kane Williamson. Uh, of the three of them, of Williamson, Warner and Rashid, uh, Sunrisers threw their weight, 14 crores worth of it, behind Kane Williamson, who then went on to have, according to Critvis, uh, match impact, statistically the worst IPL season of all time. <laughs> So they gave so they gave up the the best ever spinner, arguably the best ever batter, for a guy who uh, who didn't really deliver a huge amount. Hopefully Kane comes back, but it did it sprung to mind when it was a you know worst decisions. I know maybe yeah. a recency bias, but wonderfully on brand uh, and very and very very finally, my moment of the week is my discovery of Matthew Hayden's Instagram profile at Haydos three five nine has two hundred sixty two thousand followers and. He just does really good recipe videos. So he loves his curry and yeah, he's got a goat curry recipe that's got 6.5 million views. Thai green curry that's got 243,000 views. Lots of different curries. Crab recipe, barbecue thing he's done. Um, there's, Check, checking there's, the posters. There's it genuinely is. loads. Um, so if you're short on recipes this week, head to at Hados359 on Instagram. Uh, to get your fill anyway that is all we have time for today thanks Ben thanks Ben thanks Butch uh, thanks for listening folks we'll be back next week where we'll be getting stuck into the high performance review Sports Social Podcast Network